This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is actually Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian. Brian's out on the road. He's doing, he's on assignments. He's working hard. You know, he is one of the hardest working guys at Fox. I can tell you that. Um, but I'm thrilled to be sitting in uh, for him today. And uh, we got a great lineup. First of all, there's a lot of crazy things out there. I, I like to frequently say there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Whenever Congress is, Congress is in session, duck and cover America. Look out. You never know what could be happening. Um, and there's just a lot happening uh, in the news, and we got a great uh, lineup of guests. And we're going to kick things off this morning by talking to one of the fresh new voices out there, somebody who creates a little controversy from time to time. Um, and uh, we're excited about uh, having him, but we've got Madison Cawthorn, who's from the North Carolina 11th Congressional District. And uh, He's going to be joining us here, and uh, thrilled to have him on. I think he's on the line. Do we have Madison? Congressman, you there? Jason, I'm here, my friend. How you doing? Thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Um, lots happening in Congress. Yeah, you're just a freshman, but, boy, you know, I a few months into it, I told you uh, when I had a chance to chat with you, I said, hey, don't worry about it. You know what? I, you know, look, I served in Congress eight and a half years. It's not always like this. And but, you know, with Nancy Pelosi in charge and the Democrats having the House and Senate and the presidency, things haven't changed much. It's been crazy town since day one. But I hope you're still enjoying it. Glad you're there. You know what? I have had a front row seat of getting to watch uh, really these people who say they represent the American people completely lose the trust of the American people. I mean, I, I actually wanted to thank the squad, AOC Plus Three, for actually helping us win in Virginia. I'm telling you, the radicalization of the Democratic Party is starting to turn off so many Americans. They're starting to just say, everything that you guys believe is annoying. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And we're, when we're starting to see supply chain issues, when we're starting to see record inflation, when we're starting to see a labor shortage, people don't want to sit here and talk about our pronouns. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had uh, Rob O'Neill. I was talking to him. He's the, the Navy SEAL who took the shot to kill Osama bin Laden. He said, you know, here we are. We're getting ready. The Chinese are building a military faster than we can believe, uh, doing things to prepare to go to war. And we're over here arguing about, you know, who goes in what bathroom. And um, that's not a way to prepare for, for war. But um, <clears throat> part of the reason that the uh, the president's poll numbers and, and Kamala Harris numbers are, are just the worst, some of the worst support levels we've ever seen is because of this massive spending. I, I, I think there's a there's an arrogance. We're going to talk about this later that sort of permeates uh, this, this this latest crew out there of. And uh, and it, it infects people in Washington, D.C., but I see it in the current administration, this arrogance that comes out and just kind of assumes that, 
you know what, America doesn't understand things as well as as well as they do, and that's why they have to do all these different things. But you uh, you were there. Um, we just the nation just passed this infrastructure bill. Now, quite frankly, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have been able to do it with the help, the support of Republicans getting them over the finish line because. Some of those very ardent socialist uh, progressives were going to vote no, uh, uh, did vote no with you. Why, why did you vote no on that bill? And, uh, you know, what does that say about the Republicans who did vote yes? Oh, well, the reason I voted no is very simple. You know, I believe in infrastructure. I want to have the most high-tech rail systems in the world. I want to have fast wireless internet all over our country into every corner of everywhere for uh, broadband connectivity, the best roads, the best bridges. Uh, but this bill does not do that. I mean, there there are some different uh, calculations of what you can actually quantify as real infrastructure. But even the most liberal of commentators will say that only nine percent, nine to twenty percent of this bill has to do with infrastructure. The rest of the things just have to do with green new deal, just like idiocy that really is not going to be helping anyone. And I want to make it very clear, like you said, it was not the Democrats who passed this bill. It was the rhinos. Uh, this bill is why the American people do not trust Washington. I mean, you saw Republicans largely unified in messaging against this bill. Uh, we were mocking the Democrats for not having their act together in their party. And then the Republicans are the ones who gave the Democrats over the finish line and gave them cover. Uh, this bill was legislative malfeasance. I mean, you know, my generation is going to have to pay for that garbage, not Nancy Pelosi. And so I, I take it very personally. You know, I was there on the floor of the House uh, back in 2009. Uh, we had economic problems uh, when Barack Obama took over, and the Democrats insisted that they have a stimulus package, an infrastructure package. There were bridges and roads that had collapsed there in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the call was, if we do infrastructure, that's the best way for government to spend. And 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 it, it, it sounded good. The problem was, I think it was less than 5% of the $787 billion that was appropriated. I voted no. But less than 5% of the $787 billion actually went to roads, bridges, and highways. And most of it went mm. to go bail out unions, bail out uh, governments. Uh, it grew the size of government. But it's suddenly that the roads weren't working better because they had more staff at the Department of Transportation. I mean, and then we had years of hearings about all the waste, fraud, and abuse that happened. And here we are doing it again, but at an even bigger level. And um, there's some positive things to, to point to. Uh, when you go out and spend that much money, there'll be some help, but it's going to lead to this inflation that is just eating people alive right now. And you know this very, very well, Jason, that inflation helps the upper class. People who are able to have real assets, whether it's real estate, gold, silver, uh, whether it's it's being able to control the supply chain, own the warehouses, whatever it is, the square footage space, uh, this inflation helps the elite. The the, the elite. I mean, I feel like Bernie Sanders, I'm saying this helps the 1% of the 1%. Uh, but the problem is it does not help the, the normal American people, the middle class, which that's who I'm here fighting for. I'm here fighting for that young family around their dinner table who's trying to look their daughter in the eye and trying to understand, man, how am I going to give them a better world, especially when they can't afford to be able to buy the things that they used to be able to buy. Well, you know, look, the Democrats passed this uh, infrastructure bill, but now what they really want to do is they really want to pass their Build Back Better bill or whatever it is called these days. It's the it's the reconciliation bill. It's the four 
$4 trillion. That's the big one. That's what they're really, really going after. And uh, you have Ron Klain here in, uh, in clip one who's saying, you know what? Uh, this is actually all paid for. Listen to Ron Klain, the chief of staff. Well, I think we're going to get both these bills done. Look, I wish Republicans would support the Build Back Better Act. I, I wish that bill were bipartisan as well. But we, are, we got this infrastructure bill passed. We are going to get the Build Back Better Act passed in the House when the Congress comes back after this Veterans Day break. Yeah. Uh, we're making progress on this agenda. Well, it scares me that, uh, that the chief of staff may have this right. Um, but this one has zero, zero support from Republicans at this point. I mean, you know what? I, I wouldn't count your chickens before they hatch. I have not. I, I have found that there is no end to which these people who call themselves Republicans will surprise us. Uh, you know, there are so many people who get elected as soon as they get to Washington D.C. And Jason, you've been there. You know this very, very well. You know, they get caught up in the whole process of chasing that next echelon of power and saying, "Well, I'll do the right thing for my district once I get to this level of power." But the next thing you know, they've been chasing another echelon of power every single year for ten years. And then they look back, and they've done nothing for their people. And so I, uh, I genuinely hope you are right. No, no Republicans are going to support this, but I, I just don't know. Yeah, and Cedric Richmond, who I actually have a great deal of respect for, somebody I actually served with there in Congress. He was on the Judiciary Committee when I was in, in on the Judiciary Committee. But, boy, he was on Fox News Sunday uh, here in clip two repeating the claim that the bill is fully paid for. Listen to Cedric Richmond. It is fully paid for. Uh, it's more than paid for, and it will lead to long-term uh, debt reduction. That is a fact. Uh, the bill that we laid out uh, will do that. And what Penn does, which is patently false, is make assumptions about what Congresses will do years from now, decades from now. So our thing is, look at the bill that's in front of us. It's the third prong to our economic agenda which is producing great results. What's your thoughts on that, Madison? Well, I mean, just to attack it from the, uh, from the, the last part to the beginning, I mean, when he says that our economic plan is producing great results, I don't know if you've ever driven around any town in America, but I am seeing tons of shops, tons of businesses who are incapable of being able to have normal hours or being able to serve the normal amount of customers they normally serve because nobody's coming back to work because this economic plan is not working for Americans. Maybe it's helping for Jeff Bezos, but that's it. Uh, but when we start talking about that they have this bill completely paid for, to the American people who are hearing this and saying, well, there must be some complexity that I don't understand when they say it's not completely paid for. No, no. Please look at this just with common sense. This bill is not paid for. It will cost trillions of dollars. We will go further and further into debt. And make no mistake, the debt and the deficit that we are facing right now is a national security crisis. These people are putting our nation at risk with this crazy level of spending. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand how they think they can, with a straight face, say it's paid for. First of all, our current government is not paid for. So if you think that uh, we're on the right trajectory, um, you know, we're not just one good tax increase away from prosperity in this nation. I, I, I don't see how in the world they think that is. The other thing that they do is they continue to say that the so-called Trump tax cuts, uh, that that led to massive debt and deficit. Well, you know what? Uh, revenue to the Treasury, when they instituted the tax cuts, the revenue to the Treasury went up. Taxes went down. Revenue went up because it was an economic stimulus. If you add more taxes on top of the inflation and all these other problems and create incentives for not have people in the workforce, 
there's still four to five million people that are not engaged in the workforce. Those workers are just gone because there's too many incentives for people not to work. No, you're absolutely correct. And this, this is the problem. I mean, I, I have been discussing it with so many people saying, you know, where are the workers? I, I don't understand, especially once we cut a lot of the extra stimulus money that went out uh, for people who were unemployed at the time. Uh, we cut that into September. You know, it, it creates this question, you know, where are the workers? And now when you start wanting to pass this multi-trillion dollar bill, uh, when businesses are incapable of actually getting the supplies they need. I mean, if someone wants to put a new pump inside of their pool, it's going to be a nine-month wait. I mean, you can have a baby faster than you can get a, uh, get most of the supply needs yeah. that you need in this country. It's a uh, it's a real shame the direction we're heading. And don't make it make no mistake. This will really start to hurt us in the coming months. Well, uh, it, it's the crazy. Some of the numbers are crazy. I think it was Federal Express is is saying that they will ship 100 million more packages than they did the the, the previous year, uh, which is a crazy number. So that part of the shipment and moving, but it creates all sorts of supply chain problems, problems that were in place long before. Uh, uh, Congressman, I want to get your take though, real quickly on immigration because Joe Biden has, you know, was challenged about the idea that. We were going to pay people as a nation $450,000 when they came here illegally and were separated. But now he's kind of walking that back a little bit. Listen to this clip 11, uh, Joe Biden on immigration. You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't Uh, say that. Let's get it straight. Now, here's the thing. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child. You lost your child. He's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. Oh, that's a congressman. That's a little different than this clip 12. Let's listen to Joe Biden just back on Wednesday. As you were leaving for your overseas trip, there were reports that were surfacing that your administration is planning to pay illegal immigrants who are separated from their families at the border up to $450,000 each, possibly a million dollars per family. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. Okay. So $450,000 per person. Is that what you're saying? That was separated from a family member at the border under under the last administration. That's not going to happen. Congressman, what do you think? Jason, it's no surprise that whenever this person believes that they are facing any kind of flack or whichever way the wind blows or whatever way his handlers tell him to go, he goes. I mean, you can he- literally hear him say, oh, no, I didn't say that was a garbage report. But then it, you, as you just played that last clip, it's very clear that he did say that. Uh, I believe if we're going to be paying anyone $450,000. It should be the people that have been forced to be laid off of their businesses because of these unconstitutional mandates, which have been coming out of the Department of Labor and from OSHA. I genuinely believe we we have so many firefighters in Washington D.C. and New York City who are now have a lot, are going to be losing their benefits, losing their pension after they've worked 23 years in a firehouse protecting people's lives all throughout the pandemic. Now they're losing their jobs. If we're paying anyone, it's yeah. going to be them. Uh, but I will just say.
say it, it is no surprise that the, the president is walking this back because when the American taxpayer hears that their tax dollars are going to illegal immigrants who come into this country, that is just ludicrous. And let me tell you, if he is saying that he wants to give money to someone because they lost their child while crossing the border, first of all, you never should have put your child in harm's way like that. But second of all, do you think $450,000 is going to replace the hole that has come because you lost a child? No, that's absolutely ludicrous. What needs to happen is we need to have we need to lock down our border, stop immigration for a little while until we can actually get our immigration system sorted out, until we can make it a very, very merit-based immigration system where we bring people that we need into this country. And then you're not going to be facing any problems like this at all at the border. Yeah, I think until you pay – Members of our United States military lost their lives. They're next to kin, $450,000. Pretty offensive. And what about those nine victims of 9-11? You're going to pay an illegal immigrant more? So fundamentally wrong. Uh, Congressman Madison Cawthorn from North Carolina's 11th Congressional District, thank you so much for joining us on the, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Jason, thanks for having me. Brian Kilmeade, I hope you, I, I, I'm sorry, but I think I might like Jason better if you're listening. All right, talk to you guys soon. <laughs> More of the Brian Kilmeade Show after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com slash path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com slash path. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Uh, I'm filling in for Brian, and you know it's a it's a pretty big accomplishment for me. I'm pretty proud of myself for filling in for Brian Brian Kilmeade on the Kilmeade Show. You know, I've been- if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Sometimes, you know, there's people that aren't doing as well as you, but then there are people that are doing a little bit better than you, and I wanted to highlight this uh, amazing American, uh, Johnny Kim. Uh, Johnny Kim is probably achieving a little bit more than um, maybe you and me. Um, he was he was just uh, selected by NASA to join the 2017 astronaut candidate class. So he's like a legit astronaut. Um, he also is uh, a lieutenant in the United States Navy because he was a SEAL, which is an unbelievable um, accomplishment, having uh, completed more than 100 combat missions along the way. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, Mr. Kim is actually Dr. Kim because he holds a doctorate of medicine from Harvard. So just when you think you can do a lot, you can probably do a lot more. Dr. Kim, congratulations. You're a great American. You're serving as a United States SEAL, a Harvard-trained doctor, and now you're going to be an astronaut for NASA. Unbelievable accomplishments, a great inspiration to a whole generation. You can do a little bit more. We'll be right back. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Well, good morning. This actually, uh, it's actually Jason Chaffetz uh, filling in for Brian Kilme. Uh, lots happening in the news. Lots happening in the world. Um, a lot of things to be concerned about. Uh, but I'm thrilled to bring on uh, our next guest, uh, somebody I know pretty well. He was the former United States Attorney for the District of Utah. He's the Executive Director of Right on Crime, um, and he has some time working in the in the United States uh, Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. Uh, none other than Brett Tolman joining us on the line. Brett, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Jason. Great to hear your voice. Great to be with you. Well, Brett is a prolific hunter, and so congratulations on that uh, that nice uh, that nice elk you took. Uh, but I got that. Maybe we can use that on television <laughs> or something to check that checked out that bull. But um, I, I got I, I really want to talk to you about a couple things. Uh, particularly the Durham probe, you know, the Durham probe has been going on for a long time. I mean, this is forever. It it does seem like forever. Justice is supposed to be swift. And yet this department of justice has been notoriously slow, but um, Durham, uh, he made another movement just when you thought, man, maybe this thing is guy, maybe he's rolling up the, rolling up the, the carpets and just saying, hey, we're, we're done here. Uh, he throws out something else. Give us your perspective on, on where this Durham probe is. Well, you know, like you, Jason, and many others in the country just kind of uh, started to lose some um, expectation that we really would see, you know, much come from it. Uh, because, you know, you recall we saw um, – you know, U.S. Attorney Huber was tasked with investigating some of the issues on, you know, with with Hillary Clinton, and nothing came to that. Um, but in sort of a, a a really bombshell move, a an individual that has direct connections to the Clinton campaign 
who we now know utilized someone with even closer connections directly to Bill and Hillary Clinton, provided each other with sourcing and then manipulated the credibility of that uh, in order to really launch the Russia conspiracy um, against the Trump campaign. And what, what we see that's come from that is, you know, a number of things. But first and foremost is this is a very serious indictment and the investigation does not appear to be to be done because it looks more like these are so these are folks that John Durham is going to want to want to leverage to get more information out of them. Yeah, so explain this. You, you're being a former U.S. attorney. You've got U.S. attorney uh, Durham. Um, is he? He seems to be kind of trickling these things out. Is that is that a concerted effort to get some of these people put some pressure on them and try to get them to to flip, if you will, or to provide information or let them know, hey, you know, I really am serious. I am going to drop some charges here. Because not only do you have Kevin Kleinsmith, who was the, the FBI, um, worked at the FBI and altered documents, um, but then you have the Perkins Coie uh, attorney. But now you have uh, Igor Dushenko, um, who was indicted. And it really is a direct connection to say Democrats funded their own opposition research and then use that to get it to the FBI to start a probe of the candidate they were running against. Yeah, there's a, you know, when you build these cases, it's a little bit of both, I think, Jason, because on the first hand, a couple of the early indictments, as you referenced, they were somewhat smaller in nature, but there's now some logic to it. You see Denchenko um, you see that he is one who gets enlisted to do something. He's he's out there proactively trying to put together, you know, an, a, a campaign against Trump, utilizing this Russia connection that that they're gonna that they're gonna create. And you see the indictments that have come so far. They tap into all of the concerns. You've got the FBI lawyer. And we now know that much of what Danchenko wrote in, 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 you know, that he was receiving information from sources, some of that stuff got directly quoted by the FBI and put into FISA warrants. And then you have the attorney who they've, they've indicted. And so you can see at each level there, they're, they're going after individuals that they think they can get more information from. Danchenko is big because he connects a lot of those dots. And he also connects it to Dolan, who worked on the Bill Clinton campaigns, and then again in 2016 directly with the, the Hillary Clinton campaign. So, what you have is a, a very it, the, the conspiracy itself is not complex, but because you have people at the highest levels of the FBI, and in the White House, and in the Department of Justice <clears throat> that were not, re, you know, being honest when they were being interviewed about it, because Mueller ignores all of that. It's taking so much time and effort for Durham to actually have to uncover what people have been covering. And that's why it takes so long, and that's why it's systematic in his indictment approach. Well, and part of what he's also got is uh, you have the Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, who handed him more than a 1,000 pages of uh, material, publicly available material, plus additional material that is out there. And then you have people like... Um, you know, John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence, others that probably had access to information that was also given to Durham. So 
Um, it, an interesting parallel, it's just kind of a sidebar, you know, the White House is going overboard and saying that they are hands off with the Department of Justice, just hands off. We don't do that. You know, they're, they're referring to questions about, you know, payments to illegal aliens, uh, some $450,000. I, I don't want to dive into that. But as the Democrats make the case about not paying the $450,000, part of what I read into it is, well, we're going to see how hands off you are. Because not only do you have this investigation that is Durham, but you also have this investigation that should be going in to Hunter Biden. What does it take to get the FBI and the Department of Justice? Does it take a special counsel or when are they actually going to do a probe of all of these things from from guns to to all kinds of things, uh, classified information to uh, what's going on and this quid pro quo that I see going on with Hunter's uh, laptop. What what does it take for them to actually dive into this? Yeah, and, and in fact, um, even to, to make it, you know, the optics even worse, you have the FBI supposedly looking for the president's daughter's, uh, you know, <laughs> journal, and you have them raiding a journalist's office. You, you now have a lot of clarity in terms of um, informants and undercover in, uh, agents who were actually pushing people to go to the Capitol and trying to rally and get them, you know, riled up. And so what, when you hear people saying, you know, they're calling for the FBI to be dismantled or you're calling for, you know, accountability, it's this generalized perception that is now becoming clear that they picked sides. When it came to Antifa versus, you know, supporters of Donald Trump, they picked sides. When it came to the riots that were burning, you know, the the courthouse in Portland and they were using lasers to shine into the eyes of of federal security guards at the, the, you know, federal building in in Oregon and nothing gets done and we don't see this kind of effort uh, on the part of the FBI, then we as a, a country and it's the vast majority start to see them as not the not the you know level-headed fair-minded agency that we knew investigated you know civil rights uh, issues in the 50s and 60s but instead a team of individuals who have picked sides and were controlled by very powerful people like Comey and others and and they wielded that power to target someone they didn't like politically and that should scare all of us no, it should. And that's why I think the Durham probe is, is so important and that it not get shut down. And I do think in the case of Hunter Biden, it does require um, a special designation from the Department of Justice, somebody that can go in and do things in an even an open handed. I, I look back at the Mueller probe and there were a lot of Republicans that supported that. And Donald Trump, to his credit, was about as open and transparent as he could. I could not believe that he waived uh, attorney-client privilege with the White right. House counsel. I mean, that was some, yep. that, talk about open and transparent. I've never seen that. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you look at the fact that uh, Hunter Biden, we've been told that there are multiple U.S. attorney's offices in the country that, uh, you know, at least three offices that were in, you know, that we're investigating some aspect of the allegations, whether it be Burisma and the tax consequences or what's on the laptop, but we've seen nothing and no indication. And in the meantime, you have Biden and Hunter, you know, President Biden and Hunter, they are 
shrouding themselves in the cloak of confidentiality and secrecy, as opposed to what Donald Trump did when he was investigated multiple times. And so this double standard continues to display itself. And you don't have to like President Trump to start to see what happened when the Washington Post uh, comes out and says, yeah, it looks like we were fooled. And even even our reporting was was horrible on this. Yeah, I don't know if they're giving any of those Pulitzer Prizes back uh, for all the <laughs> bogus stuff. I, if you want to see integrity, let's see if they give those Pulitzers back. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I don't see them doing that anything. And how many times, I, even when I was in Congress, how many times did I listen to a Democrat say, emoluments clause the emoluments clause you know <laughs> right had to go look that one up and try to figure out what it was and, and wouldn't stop with it and now hunter biden is pretty much out there brazenly saying you know and jill biden is saying hey we take hunter's artwork and we we hang it in the white house and then they have these shows and they're charging i mean they won't reveal so, who's buying them. They don't want any. They don't want any insight. I mean, it's the most secret, shrouded, you know, administration in recent history. And then it comes a year after Senator Portman and Senator Carper put together a report, and the report comes out from the United States Senate, and it was talking about how, uh, particularly the Russians, but how there is such a hole in how you um, deal with laundering of money, that the way people launder money, they get around a lot of these um, uh, barriers that Washington puts up. The way they get around all of that is through art weird, art dealing. Uh, the art world is how they hide the money, they transfer money, they do it. Like, I'm not saying that Hunter necessarily did anything illegal, but when the Senate comes out a year later or a year earlier and saying, hey, this is how we how we launder money, how la laundered money gets done. And then Hunter Biden's doing it. And we hear that there are shared accounts with Joe Biden. I mean, it, it come on. It's, it's outrageous. And, and there, you know, there's reasons why there's people that have made allegations that they operate more like a crime family, you know, with with the big man, the boss being Joe Biden and Hunter having, you know, you know, had his his lapses with, you know, uh, drug use and, and other criminal behavior. And he's leaked and, and they almost, you know, it almost all fell apart. And, and you know, and they rallied and they brought everyone back within the tent and they continued to operate. And so whether whether it's true or not that they've been criminal, there's so much there that it is outrageous that there isn't someone doing a serious investigation into what has gone on between Hunter Biden and these other countries. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Countries and Hunter Biden and his dad. Yeah, we hear a lot about China. We've heard a lot about Ukraine. What I would hope people would also dive into, if they really want to understand how, how um, in-depth this was, Look at the transcripts that allegedly came from Hunter Biden's laptop 
with his discussions with the president of Mexico's, um, the former president of Mexico's grandson, when Hunter Biden says, I'm getting ready to take off. I'm going to Mexico. Uh, I want to see you um, because he needs a deal. And he says, look, I opened up the White House. I opened up the vice president's office. You've been to the residence. You've had every meeting that you, I pulled off every meeting you've ever asked for. Now I need to see the money. That's essentially what this this email says. And that alone should be uh, the impetus to to actually do a further probe. But more to hear on this, I hope. I hope it doesn't get shut down. And if the Democrats are true to their word and saying, oh, we're hands off with the Department of Justice. But I don't know if that's very true. So uh, Brett Tolman, former United States attorney, again, the executive director right on crime, uh, worth looking at. Um Brett Tolman, thank you for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks, Jason. Great to speak with you. I appreciate it. All right, we'll be back with more with the Brian Kilmeade Show right after this. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Would that I had the magic wand on this. As you know, of course, uh, oil is a global market. It is controlled by a cartel. That cartel is called OPEC. And they made a decision yesterday that they were not going to increase beyond what they were already planning. That was the energy secretary, uh, Jennifer Granholm. Uh, This is Jason Chaffetz, by the way, filling in for Brian. Brian Kilmeade. Uh, That was uh, on Friday, and I got to tell you, it is incredibly offensive for her to suggest and just laugh off about these rising energy prices. She's the secretary of energy. This is a a department uh, that went ahead and shut down access to extraction on on public lands that is looking at closing another pipeline that already closed the Keystone pipeline. And for her to just suggest, Oh, we're just at the whims of what goes on at OPEC is so offensive. And she was on CNN just, uh, just here recently in clip five, listen to her latest explanation. It will be more expensive this year than last year. The oil and gas companies are not flipping the switch as quickly as the demand requires. Let us get off of the volatility associated with fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and associated with others who don't have our country's interests at heart and invest in moving to clean energy where we will not have this problem. Could the average gas price in America be $4 a gallon in the United States soon? Well, we certainly hope not. Uh, uh, Breaking news for you there. Um, So many people are dealing with four plus dollar gas. I was in California over the weekend, I was paying almost $5 a gallon. Um, and uh, in parts of the other country, they may be slightly both below $4. But remember what it was like under Donald Trump. The gas was almost a dollar less per gallon, a dollar less per gallon. 
that's showing up in the on top of inflation and the price of goods, the price of shipments, and just every day going to work, going to school, whatever it might be doing. And those people on fixed incomes, they're really feeling this. So I got to tell you, there's there's an arrogance that is permeating out here that I think is devastating to the Democrats. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, I think, uh, personified arrogance, the way he approached parents. Uh, The mask mandate, the vaccination mandate, there's just an arrogance that suggests Washington, D.C. knows all, controls all, knows all. And if it's inconvenient, oh, it was somebody else's fault, like those in the Middle East on gas prices. We were energy independent. We were energy independent. And yet they changed the policies. And now we're having to live with those policies. And you have to pay for those policies. That's been the difference in less than a year of this new administration. So, yeah, there's a way to be energy independent. We had it. And then we got rid of it. And now we're paying the price. That's called arrogance. We'll be right back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Almost Brian Kilmeade. This is Jason Chaffetz filling in for the ever hardworking Brian Kilmeade, who uh, I believe will be back tomorrow. I could be wrong, but I think he's going to be back tomorrow. Um, and lots happening out in the news, lots happening out in the world. And I think the political world is still rocking from the uh, the uh, victory by uh, Mr. Youngkin there, the new governor elected the state of uh, Virginia. Democrats scrambling to try to figure out what in the world happened. I happen to think that the American people gravitate to policy. They vote for who they like, who they know, and who they agree with on policy and principle. And if you buy into that, uh, Youngkin kind of encapsulated all of it. He had great ties in the history there in Virginia. He was able to talk to parents and people about about freedom, about liberty, about self-reliance, and about their kids and who should be in charge of things. And then there was an arrogance that permeated out of out of Terry McAuliffe. They didn't want to retread. They had a poor communicator, but more importantly, they had policy that was on the wrong side. And and if you listen to people like James Carville, who's a pretty smart guy in terms of politics, there is a degree of wokeness there that just really scared and I think offended a lot of people. Let's go to clip 23. What's wrong with just stupid wokeness? All right, you don't just look at Virginia and New Jersey. Look at Long Island. Look at Buffalo. Look at Minneapolis. Even look at Seattle, Washington. I mean, just defund the police lunacy to take Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools. I mean, that people see that. And it, 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 it's, it's just really a, have a suppressive effect all across the country. The Democrats, some of these people need to go to a woke detox center or something. I mean, they're, they're expressing a language that people just don't use. And there's a backlash and a frustration at that. Absolutely, there's a backlash to it because that's what the Democrats actually believe. They're saying it out loud, and then they're trying to to per, to put that out there in terms of policy. The idea that the Democrats want to defund the police—I mean, it, you go back just over a year, about a year and four months ago, and Kamala Harris was out there trying to raise money to bail people out of jail as fast as she could to get them back out into these riots. 
um, the Democrats have taken this position in defunding. And you know what? There is a way to actually get rid of the law enforcement, Border Patrol and others by implementing these ma- these uh, these vaccination mandates. You see it in uh, in New York City with the uh, uh, closing of fire departments and police departments. It's a backdoor way to actually make that policy happen. Now, you can have people like a very talented Senator Mark Warner out of Virginia who's been a governor there. Now he's a senator. Um, look, let's get his take on what happened. Are Democrats too woke, Senator? Listen, I don't support defund the police. Matter of fact, I think you've saw Democrats all around who were successful. The new mayor of New York who you're going to have on has talked about investing additionally in our police forces. Are there ways that we need to make that policing more community-based? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the notion of what happened in Virginia, where the, you know, there is not a school in Virginia that teaches critical race theory, uh, but the governor-elect, Governor Youngkin, um, stirred up the cultural pot there. Uh, I still don't think there's a, a recognition and an understanding of what's going on at the schools. And as long as the Democrats continue to bury their heads in the sand, I think what was happening is I think through COVID uh, parents were getting, because they were forced to, to get more involved and engaged in their kids' education. And they started looking over Junior's shoulder there to see what was on the computer screen and what they were looking at and started to really get deeply concerned and they're just totally ignoring the idea that, yeah, some of this wokeness uh, was was permeating itself into these schools and these school boards and uh, totally tone deaf Democrats uh, bringing out people that just do not have a respect that when they close off people from debate and and allowing themselves to express themselves at these school board meetings, when you have a parent who's saying, look, my child was um, uh, attacked in the in the bathroom and that person ends up getting arrested uh, for trying to speak out because the school board member allegedly says, oh, no, there's nothing there. That didn't happen. And then it really did happen. Th- those types of things happen. There's one little analysis I would like to inject in here before we take a call. The number, by the way, for the for the Kill Me show is uh 866-408-7669. We're going to take a call here in a moment. I think one of the underlying facts that maybe people didn't see is that you have a huge military presence there in Virginia. Huge. And the way Joe Biden and the Democrats handled the extraction from Afghanistan, I think there are a lot of people out there that said, I will never, ever vote for a Democratic again. They were so offended, so dismayed by the extraction from Afghanistan, it's pretty hard for those people then to go back into the voting booth the very first time they can and check a box that says, yeah, I want more Democrats. I I think that was that was a factor of I don't know how many thousands, but you got probably you have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of families there in Virginia who have ties to the United States military. And, and I think that's a factor, and I don't know that that comes out in the polling, but I have a hard time believing that it's not. All right, let's go to Carolyn, who's uh, listening on w, WDBO there in Orlando. Carolyn, what's on your mind? Hey, Jason, I just have a quick question. What are 
what can or what are the Republicans doing to try to stop Biden from this crazy stuff that's going on? I'm like, what can they do to stop the immigrants that are coming across the border? What can they do to, you know, keep get these pipelines back open? I just think that I'm not hearing, all I'm hearing is the Republicans saying what Biden's doing wrong, but I'm not hearing about what they're doing to try to fix it. Uh, Carolyn, you, that's a great question, and I appreciate listening to the show and asking a, such a pertinent question um, because my concern about the, 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 the Republicans right now is a very disjointed, not unified, they're poor communicators. Um, Margaret Thatcher, one of my favorite quotes out of Margaret Thatcher is, first you got to win the argument, then you go out and win the vote. And um, when you don't have people unified coming across with a salient argument that moves people and convinces the uh, people that you're right and maybe your policy is better, then it's really hard to win the vote. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Youngkin was exceptional at this in talking to people, going town to town, moving around and talking about education, for instance. On the role of immigration, a lot of those uh, Republicans have been in there, have been complicit in some of these uh, desires to bring on amnesty and do these types of things. But I will say that Donald Trump had this under control. We, when he talked about the border and locking down the border and, and the stay in Mexico policy, the border was not a problem. These are self-inflicted wounds by the Biden-Harris administration. And when Democrats have the House and Senate and the presidency, Guess what? Uh, they get to call the shots and Republicans are left with a megaphone. But what I don't see them doing is being absolutely, totally united. Uh, for instance, let me give you an example. When the story came out about the $450,000 payment per person for those involved in separation. So separation involves two people, right? So that's $900,000. Every single Republican senator could have signed a letter jointly together demanding that the Department of Justice come clean on what they are planning or not planning to do. Uh, the, the Republicans that voted for this to confirm uh, the Homeland Security Secretary, where are they? How are they going to answer this question? Um, and demanding that they bring them up there. Republicans in the House of Representatives the gavel is controlled by Democrats, but you know what Republicans can do? They can have their own hearings, um, even though they're not official uh, hearings, they are allowed to do this if they, and I can't remember the number, but they have to get a certain number of signatures and they can hold a minority hearing day. Why aren't they doing that? Those types of things can be done. And you, you mentioned pipelines Again, I think a lot of this is communicating to the American people. We are energy independent. At least we were. And um, I think we did a pretty good job of explaining to people about the Keystone Pipeline. I think we were poor in saying, why is it the Biden-Harris administration approved the Russian pipeline? But now they're trying to take down another pipeline. You know, the Biden administration is trying to take down what's called Line 5. This is... Uh, takes from Western Canada to Michigan about 540,000 barrels per day. And that's how much moves through this pipeline. Now, remember, when it moves through its pipeline, 
they're they're not burning fuel through trucks to 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 truck it. They're doing it through a pipeline. It's safer. It's more secure. It's more eco friendly. But the Biden Harris administration is looking at closing that one down too. The same time that the energy secretary is saying, well, you know, it's all controlled by OPEC. It's not controlled by OPEC. We import form import far more oil out of Mexico and Canada than we do out of the Middle East. And so if you have Republicans that aren't policy oriented and don't understand the policy and can't quickly respond to these questions, then you're left with a vacuum. And the last thing I would mention is, yeah, we do have a national media that's not going to be doing us any favors. And I do think there's suppression that will be happening and does happen from the social media companies. But boy, you better get members of Congress that can get out there and speak and start talking to people and arguing policy and going point by point as to why they think they would be better in charge, not just, hey, we're different, we're not them. you got to also explain what is going on. So, um, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we've got to have more. we got a lot more coming up, and uh, I think coming up after this is going to be Congressman Brad Wenstrup, who's the Republican out of Ohio. Great guy. Amazing story. Uh, just a great patriot. Glad he's going to be joining us, joining us on the show. So please uh, stay tuned to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be back with more right after this. It's Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. These vaccine requirements have been litigated up and down the courts all over the country. State requirements, for example, one in Maine. Uh, and every single court before this one ruled that they were valid. I'm quite confident that when this finally gets fully adjudicated, not just a temporary order, right. uh, the, the validity of this requirement will be upheld. It's common right. sense, Chuck. If OSHA can tell people to wear a hard, hard hat on the job, right. to be, be careful on chemicals, it can put, put in place these simple measures to keep our workers safe. That was uh, the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain. Uh, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade. But that was the White House Chief of Staff uh, talking about the vaccine mandate. Uh, of course, the 5th District has put a hold on that, um, saying there gotta be there might be some constitutional problems. But we're, uh, we're thrilled to have uh, one of my favorites there in the United States Congress, Congressman Brad Wenstrup from uh, – uh, Ohio's 2nd Congressional District. Uh, he's a doctor by trade. He's a member of the House Ways and Means Committee, and he's also on the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Dr. Uh, Congressman Wenstrup, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be with you, Jason. Yeah, it's a touchy subject, right? It is a touchy subject, So, but I want to get your take on it. Um, you're being uh-huh. having a medical background. Uh, but also being a member of Congress and looking at these mandates, not only mask mandates, but vaccination mandates. Um, oh, yeah, it's just common sense. Everybody, we, we the government should just be able to stick you with whatever we say, and you're going to have to do it or you're not going to work in this country. Yeah, you know, as a physician, you want people to be well, obviously, and, and our doctor's caucus, our GOP doctor's caucus, we were for the vaccinations, but we were never for the mandates. And we feel that uh, vaccinations have been uh, fabricated and manufactured correctly, that they've gone through the right trials, 
And like anything else, uh, there are some indications and sometimes where you, you don't want to necessarily use a certain medication. But the bedside manner to me has been horrible since the beginning. And what most Americans have felt like is that they're being lectured to and told what to do all the time rather than the, the ideal situation where you sit and you talk with your doctor about what's best for you. I even served on Cincinnati Board of Health. I understand a little bit public health crisis, nothing to the uh, the, the size and, and parameters of COVID. But at the same time, this is not the way to go about it. And people are becoming more resilient, and they feel like their freedoms are being taken away. But here's the bottom line, and why I think it's going in the wrong direction, besides the fact that it's just the government telling you to do something. Um, if you look at the vaccines from the very beginning, we knew that people that were vaccinated got COVID. The numbers were much lower. Therapeutically, it did a great job. It prevented a lot of people and saved a lot of lives. There's no doubt it has. And I think getting the vaccines will continue to do that. But at the same time, you're still going to get COVID. Some people are still going to get COVID. We also know that viruses produce variants. This isn't major earth-shattering news, right? So the bottom line is, if 110% of the world is vaccinated, we are still going to be fighting COVID. And I think that they're missing the point here. Yes, we want you to get vaccinated because you're less likely to get sick. You're less likely to die if you get COVID, but you still can get COVID. But we as a government, just like as we came together with the private sector and formed vaccines through Operation Warp Speed, should be continuing to work on therapeutics. We we have the monoclonal antibodies, extremely helpful, and we need to continue down that path. And many companies are out there doing it. That's what we should be doing, as well as encouraging people to talk to their doctor about what may be best for them. Well, but it really it draws a line between the government and the people when you try to force something. Well, and I think that's, you know, and, and, and hey, you're not going to be allowed to work. Um, right. I, I, I just I think that is so wholly offensive. Look. I got the vaccine. My wife got the vaccine. It, it was right for us. But there's certain people who maybe it's not right for and uh, or or had COVID and said, I don't feel like I need to get vaccinated. So I think there are legitimate reasons out there. This mandate, you know, is for companies, 100 people and greater. But there's a lot of independent companies out there, a lot of small to medium sized businesses but now the administration is saying that really nothing's off the table. Listen here to the Surgeon General as he's being uh, interviewed by Martha Raddatz. Cut 18. If the law survives legal challenges, will the administration be extending the mandate to smaller employers with fewer than 100 employees? Well, Martha, certainly nothing is off the table at this moment. Nothing's off the table, Congressman. That's the way yeah. these people are rolling. I've got just a minute left. Well, a couple things they should put on the table is uh, having people given the ability to, to be tested. And I know there's some provisions and for some, but not necessarily in health care. And then also, um, why not pay attention to natural immunity? To me, this is where a lot of people lie. They've had COVID. They're better. They may have a greater, stronger immune system than if they're vaccinated. And so why are they ignoring this? This should not be ignored. This is part of the scientific process. And this is something that should be looked at because in the long run, people may be better with the immunity that they developed from having COVID 
than just having been vaccinated. Doctor, doctor and Congressman Wenstrup, we got a hard out. We got to go. Thank you for joining us on the Kill Mead Show. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is actually Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for the one, the only Brian Kilmeade, trying to fill in his shoes here. Um, We've got a lot happening in the world, and I think it's remiss if we didn't uh, spend some time on some of the foreign policy aspects, some of the things that are happening around the world. And I I found one of the the great uh, brains out there, if you will, on this is uh, Alex Gray. He was the... uh, He served as the deputy assistant to the president and the chief of staff of the White House National Security Council 2019 to 2021 there with Donald Trump, uh, President Trump and uh, Robert O'Brien, who was the national security advisor. Um, He was the chief of staff there, somebody who's working behind the scenes. We got a glimpse and was using his expertise to help protect this country. So we're thrilled to have uh, Alex Gray joining us. Alex, thanks for joining the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jason. No, it, listen, we we appreciate it. Um, look, the uh, it's really interesting. You have some in the White House saying, "Look, the president's on top of everything, and everything's going really well. The economy's singing." But then every once in a while, you do have a uh, you do have a moment of candor uh, that comes along with it. I put a lot of spin on this, but let's listen to cut seven. This is Ron Klain, the chief of staff on Meet the Press. In my opinion, it's, a, it's been a rough and tough year, and we knew it would be. President Biden has said this all the time. We're in a year-long effort to dig out of the holes we were left. We inherited a debt economy, 50,000 jobs a month. We're now finally back to 500,000 jobs a month. We inherited a country where 4,000 people a day, 4,000 people a day were dying from COVID. That's now down 75%. So I understand that voters are tired. Americans are tired of how long it's taken mm-hmm. to get the economy moving, to get COVID under control. Uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything that the, the, the chief of staff is saying, but I think it has been a tough and difficult year. And I want to talk about President Biden on the world stage, um, because as I saw him out and about uh, around the world, I don't think we were necessarily strengthened. And I saw him take some positions on uh, a climate, but without China and Russia, I mean, to what to what ends is that actually going to do anything, Alex? Well, I think the reality is that when President Trump left office, Jason, we were at a, a I think really despite some of the challenges of COVID, we were at a high point in terms of America's strength and uh, projection of power on the world stage, whether it was the investment President Trump made in our military, whether it was rewriting our economic security through better, more equitable trade agreements, whether it was strengthening some of the domestic pillars at home to make us more competitive against China long term. Um, You know, and, and you look where we are now with Afghanistan, with China testing hypersonic missiles, with Russia growing its aggression in Eastern Europe, I think it's hard to argue that things have improved in the last nine months. Um, And the reality to your question on on climate change, the reality is that China is building 
dozens of coal plants uh, on a regular basis. China leads the world in, in CO2 emissions. And the United States has been a, a significant reducer of, of carbon emissions over the last uh, decade or so. We, despite you know, leaving the Paris Climate Agreement under President Trump, our record on climate has improved dramatically if you measure CO2 emissions. So I, I, would, I would say that the, the biggest challenge that we're going to have uh, if John Kerry, for instance, gets his way and, we're able, and we plunge forward with some sort of climate agreement with China, my biggest concern is that we start sacrificing our strategic interests, our long-term competitiveness with China economically, militarily, diplomatically, in the name of these chimerical uh, climate goals that I think we know from, from watching how the Chinese do business, they're probably not going to honor those commitments anyway. So that's, that, I think, is a real area of concern to watch. Well, you touched on a lot of things, but yes, our southern border was was secure, and now it, and now it's not. Uh, we did become energy independent and reduced our our reliance uh, on the world to to fuel our future, so to speak. And we were able to make improvements in terms of air quality and whatnot. Those are huge accomplishments, but and in China, I, I I just don't see President Biden doing anything. Uh, as it relates to China. Now, there's some, you know, armchair quarterbacks out there that are projecting that China might make a move on Taiwan, uh, that maybe they wait till after the Olympics is done. They see a weak President Biden. They don't believe he would do anything. They saw what happened in Afghanistan and that maybe that would be the time that China would make a move on Taiwan. Well, I, I think there's there's something to the argument that China's taking a, a look over the last year and they're looking, projecting ahead over the next two, three years. And there, there's a window. Admiral Davidson, who was the head of U.S. Pacific Command until recently, um, taught, and we're now starting to call it the Davidson window in, in Washington, where he, he looked at China has this period between the uh, 2022 Olympics and uh, a couple years after that, when Taiwan is going to start uh, some investments that Taiwan has made in its own defense are going to start bearing fruit. Uh, and there's really kind of a limited period where, in his estimation, Beijing is likely to do something militarily to force reunification. And I think it's as we, we think about that period uh, and knowing what has happened in Afghanistan, which, in my view, Jason, sent a horrible signal both to partners and to adversaries alike, whether in Asia or the rest of the world, I think we have to be cognizant that there is this window of danger uh, for the United States to potentially uh, see some sort of aggressive action in uh, Asia and particularly regarding Taiwan. And that's why it's so important that we take some proactive steps to make sure that the Taiwanese are a, are a porcupine, that the Chinese can't digest them easily, and that they're even deterred because of those proactive steps from doing something provocative like uh, signaling a, a potential invasion. So that's, that's new, new weapon systems that deter Taiwan, uh, China from thinking that they could ever remotely conquer Taiwan. That's investments in our defense. That's investments in the U.S. Navy, which unfortunately the, Taiwan, the Chinese uh, commissioned three warships in a single day this year. We're going to commission about seven in the entire calendar year of 2021. Um, so we, we've got to reverse those trends, and we've got to start thinking 
like President Trump did and like we did in his administration, we got to start thinking strategically about what are our signals, uh, what do they convey both to our friends and our, our adversaries. And unfortunately, right now, I, I don't see positive signals being sent from Washington, either to our friends or to our adversaries. Uh, I think we have a weak president. I, I think he's physically weak. I don't think he uh, has the gumption to, for, for the job at this point. And uh, as uh, Secretary Gates once said, I think Joe Biden has been wrong on every foreign policy, on every foreign policy uh, uh, position over the last uh, 40 years. But other than that, yeah, things are going great. I do like your analogy with the porcupine. I hadn't heard that before, but it is very difficult to, to ingest a porcupine. So, um, I, I, that I, well said. Um, I, I want to ask you about the supply chain because we're all feeling the pinch. You can go to, go to Costco, go anywhere. And all of a sudden you'll see something that's not on the shelf. That's normally on the shelf. And I found it, um, almost comical, if not sad that when this really, the supply chain was hitting the, the, the its peak, then President Biden said, oh, well, we're going to gather some people together. I mean, the time to deal with this was four or five, six months ago when they didn't take care of the supply chain issue. Break it down for people and how this happens and why it's such a problem and that you can't just flip a switch and, and fix it overnight because they created these problems. Well, the, the supply chain issues are, are multifaceted. I mean, there's the issue of, and, and this has been, I think, written about eloquently in places like the Wall Street Journal, they're domestic issues where we, in, in places like California, where the problems are, are most prevalent, you know, we have, the government of California, the federal government, have made policy decisions over the last 20 years that have led directly to this, whether it's making it impossible to build a warehouse so that you can actually, you know, companies can pre-position uh, stocks of, of whatever the supplies need to be on those shelves. It's just too expensive. The environmental regulations are too onerous. Um, whether it's, it's some of the restrictions we put on truck drivers to make it harder for them to be independent uh, contractors rather than unionized employees. You know, there's just a whole litany of progressive policies that have been put in place that make it very difficult uh, for us to, to have a smooth supply chain. And you contrast that with a state like Florida, where you know, Governor DeSantis is saying he's not having any problems. We're, we're you know, cargoes coming into the ports in Florida without any issue. Um, so that's that's one set of facts. Then there's kind of the, the larger issue, which is for too long, we just haven't made the type of investments that we need in a supply chain that's independent from foreign risk and foreign interference. And, and you know, we see this in a peacetime situation, and it's difficult and it's unpleasant, uh, and it's compounded by the inflationary pressures that we're seeing. But imagine this, Jason, in a conflict scenario where too many of our supply chain uh, components are dependent on potential adversaries like China. And that's why one of the things that we undertook in the Trump administration was an aggressive attempt to what's called nearshoring. So if, if best case, you onshore a lot of our supply chain, whether it's um, semiconductors, personal protective equipment for, for pandemics, you bring it back into the United States. Second best option is you bring it into countries that are friendly to us in Central America, the Caribbean, South America. What we did with ventilators at the beginning of COVID, we brought a lot of that production to Central America and the Caribbean to make sure Americans had ventilators if they needed it. We did it with masks, we did it with gloves. 
Um, so, so that's the type of proactive economic security strategy that we for too long just haven't been undertaking in the U.S. And, and I think that's what the Biden administration should have been doing for the last year is making those investments so that we were not dependent on, on uh, foreign sources for things that we should be able to buy cheaply uh, at big box retailers. Yeah, the the supply chain issue problem is not going away, and so much of it was created by the Biden-Harris administration in policies that they took, unions that they propped up, um, regulations they put in place on truckers, um, and it's very real. And don't just tell me it's because the economy is singing and that sort of thing. Uh, I I think this has been this was brewing since they changed a lot of the policies that the Biden. Harris administration put into place. And then once we do get these shipping containers on trucks, guess what? The cost of fuel is up about a buck a gallon. You got to pay for that as well. This inflation, it really hits fixed incomes, people on limited incomes. Uh, it hits them the most. The rich, they just absorb it. But the the people who really feel it, uh, the everyday hardworking Americans just trying to do the right thing, commuting to work and whatnot, um, I, we're talking with Alex Gray, the former chief of staff uh, there at the National Security Council with Robert O'Brien, who was the National Security Advisor. Um, there's some news about North Korea uh, firing some shots, doing some more testing. We've seen this in the past. Um, when we hear these types of news reports, um, I'm sure you, when you were in your position, were looking at a lot of classified information. When we see you know, reports of the firing or testing of this, is that something the average person here should be worried about, or is that just the normal course of business, how North Korea and others do things? Well, I, I think the, the fundamental problem, Jason, is that uh, it has become normal business. And unfortunately, um, I, I think there are too many people in the Washington foreign policy establishment who felt that there was, there was nothing we could do. North Korea was going to saber rattle indefinitely, and that was just how the world would work. You probably remember President Obama told then-President-elect Trump that that was his biggest fear um, when right. they first met after the election, that, that North Korea was the, the most dangerous thing President Trump would face. Um, you, know, you fast forward four years, and when President Trump left office, because of a combination of very tough sanctions, very uh, tough rhetoric, combined with his desire and willingness to do some very dynamic diplomacy at the leader level with Kim Jong-un, uh, which the Washington foreign policy establishment said was, was crazy, was, 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 had all sorts of objections. That ultimately led to a stabilization of tensions on the peninsula, unlike anything we had seen in decades. And you know, what we fortunately now have had over the last year is a muddled policy um, where we're really not quite sure what the Biden administration is trying to accomplish on North Korea. And because of the lack of clarity coming from the administration, I think you're going to see continued tests, continued provocations. Um, there's an election in March in South Korea. I think as we get closer to that, there's going to be more signaling from the North. And as, as we've seen over and over and over again, and a lack of perceived leadership from Washington uh, creates vacuums that our adversaries seek to fill. Yeah. And that's yeah. uh, unfortunately what's going to happen, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that vacuum is being felt on the international stage. And then the whole Afghanistan just made it exponentially worse. Um, could not have been executed more poorly than how Biden and Harris did that as well. So uh, Alex Gray, 
again, the former chief of staff to the White House National Security Council uh, there with Robert O'Brien. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We do appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right. We'll be back with more of the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Show.com. our number 866-408-7669. We'll be right back. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, almost with Brian Kilmeade. This is Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian. You know, one of the things I read about today is something I tend to read about week after week, and that is how many people were shot and killed in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, This past weekend, nine killed, 39 wounded. It's a stunning number by any count, yet it happens time and time again. And I, I, you know, the question for the mayor, what are you doing about this? The question to the state, what are you doing? But question for the county, what are you doing? But we keep seeing this week after week after week. And you know what? If you want different results, you're going to have to do something differently. Don't do what Los Angeles is doing. In Los Angeles County, the county sheriff who is is ripping, they have a very liberal district attorney in George Gascon who probably should be recalled. The Los Angeles Daily News is reporting that the L.A. County Deputy District Attorney Alyssa Blair did not prevent uh, present evidence at a hearing last week meant to determine if Andrew... Kachu, I think that's how you pronounce his name, should serve his full sentence for killing another person who was 41-year-old 40, uh, uh, back in March of 15, 2015. They go to a hearing, they don't even present any evidence. They're essentially going to let this killer walk and get out on the street. And in Chicago, when you have that many people that are killed, that are murdered, that are wounded, you have a city in peril and in living in fear. Uh, to me, that means a greater police presence, not defund the police. That means you've got to have a district attorney who actually convicts people, puts people away in jail. And they got to take that place back street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, and make it a, a great city, the great city that it used to be. But right now it's in peril. You cannot live like this, Chicago. You've got to make a difference. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Almost Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm uh, filling in for Brian. I'm a Fox News contributor. I got a podcast called Jason in the House. I hope you're able to check it out. Jason in the House, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, And I served in the Congress for eight and a half years. So um, I got that strike against me as as well. So uh, thanks for joining us here. We got uh, some fun things to talk about. And... uh, Uh, I'm still fascinated by what happened in Virginia and New Jersey, for that matter, 
Uh, that New Jersey race was so close. And I got to tell you, this truck driver who took out the Senate president there in, in New Jersey, that, uh, the idea that he spent less than $200 going into the primary and, mo- and the majority of that came from dunk, it was an uh, expenditure to Dunkin' Donuts. That's just like my favorite thing ever. So, uh, but but I, I really do want to try to kind of digest uh, what's going on and what didn't go on in Virginia. Let's listen to Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming. He was on Sunday Morning Futures with with uh, Maria Bartiromo. It was a rejection election. Uh, voters overwhelmingly across the country rejected these radical policies of the Democrats, which have caused inflation, rising prices, open borders, and now they want to raise taxes even higher. You would think this would be a wake-up call for the Democrats, but they're still sleepwalking like zombies on this road to socialism, and they've bloated up their uh, other bill, the $4 trillion reckless tax and spending bill, almost thumbing their noses at the voters who said stop. And the Democrats know this is going to make taxes go up. It's going to make the debt go up. It's going to make prices go up. And Maria, people across the country are fed up. No, I think it's uh, I think that's a good analysis and and uh, uh, well said. Joining me on the line is somebody I served with in Congress, uh, Lee Zeldin, who's the Republican uh, candidate for governor there in this great state of New York. He's on the House Financial Services Committee, he's on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and he's uh, a great father of some beautiful two girls that uh, I hope you get to hear their full story at some point because it really is inspirational. But Congressman, for now, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jason. Well, I, I want to talk. I want to get your take on what we saw across the country because. You're certainly banking on uh, Democrats and truly independents actually taking a look at the individual candidates and going your direction. But in order for you to, you know, have a glide path to to victory, you've got to be able to attract some Democrats and certainly those independents. But boy, in New Jersey and um, in Virginia, they they certainly seemed ready for change. Yeah, no doubt. And and in New York as well, uh, Suffolk and Nassau County on Long Island, we flipped the Nassau County executive seat, the Nassau and Suffolk district attorney, and the Suffolk County legislature. There were New York City Council seats that flipped, uh, and all across the rest of the state, a lot went from blue to red, and a lot went blue to red in blue areas. Uh, very uh, powerful messages being sent by voters who – you know, for a long time have been voting Democrat. They're fed up. Uh, we have a, a former neighbor uh, of ours, and you mentioned my uh, daughters, Jason. They, uh, they certainly adore you. Uh, a couple doors down from us, uh, there was a woman named Maritza. And Maritza still lives in our community, but she uh, lives about a mile away. And, you know, she is somebody who on an issue of education is, as a concerned parent, uh, is willing to vote for Republicans last Tuesday. I was hearing stories like this from uh, all over New York where you know, people want to be more actively involved in their kids' education, don't want Democrats to keep them away at arm's length. They care about crime and public safety. Uh, they're the this, this small business owners who are having trouble getting people to work uh, because government's incentivizing them more to stay at home. There's the people who are uh, upset about the, the anti-American sometimes anti-Semitic propaganda coming from certain members of Congress who are getting elevated and empowered. Uh, And then there's that desire for competency. 
And in certain cases where it's not incompetency from the Biden administration, they know exactly what they're doing and doing it anyway. Afghanistan was incompetency in many respects. What's happening on the southern border, that's not incompetency. They know what they're doing wrong, and they're doing it anyway. So it's a collection of a whole bunch of factors. You mentioned Virginia and New Jersey. We saw it all across New York. People are ready for change, and folks are coming our way who maybe haven't voted Republican in a long while. Well, let's get specific. I want to break down that um, the the concern, the drivers, the things that really hit people. Let me focus on a. I, I think there's threefold that that certainly came to play in 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 Virginia, and I want to get your take on what's going on in New York. I think there are people that are very concerned about the mask mandate. The second part is, and you can break that down into how it affects kids, how it affects businesses, just getting a meal there in New York City, for instance, for goodness sake. Then you have the vaccination mandate, the the actual, hey, if you want to keep your job, you're going to have to get uh, stuck with this needle um, and get the vaccination. Now, I I got vaccinated, but uh, I could see where a lot of people would decide, no, they don't want to for very legitimate reasons. So there's the vaccination. And the, the third is the content of what is actually being taught to our kids in schools, because I saw Terry McAuliffe express and personify an arrogance about no government does that, not parents, and I really think that was a a, a key lever in in making sure that he was not reelected as the as the uh, the governor of Virginia. But how do you read those three? So, uh, so success in education is having parents involved in their son and daughter's education. That's good. That's something that should be encouraged to have more of. Uh, And what's amazing about the blowback, even after Tuesday, is that you have people on the left who are saying, well, if parents want to be involved in their kids' education like that, they should homeschool their kid. Well, you know, you might think you're being cute, funny, you know, or maybe you think you're being a genius, but there are a whole lot of public school parents who are are out there uh, who you're discouraging, who they're not going to homeschool their kids. All they're going to do is take what you said as an out-of-touch insult. Now, it comes in different forms, as you point out. I mean, mask mandates on two-year-olds in New York, are you kidding me? That's one aspect of this. Uh, but then we also have, you know, New York City, they're getting rid of advanced academics, the gifted and talented program, in the name of equity. Because if your kid is reading or doing math at a higher reading level or a math level, it's not fair to challenge them to go further for the kid who isn't reading or doing math at that same level. And then as far as the curriculum inside of the school, we're exposing kids to an agenda where you're pitting one student against the other uh, and trying to make them feel inferior based on race or and starting certain aspects of sex education uh, at ages that are just not appropriate for the the lessons that you're trying to portray. I mean, while you have kids still trying to figure some stuff out for themselves, or maybe in certain respects, they may be years away from starting to think about certain things. And it's like an effort to indoctrinate and brainwash. When I send my 15-year-old girls to school, I want them to get a quality education. Don't try to indoctrinate my kid. Don't try to brainwash my kid just give them a quality education yeah and do so in a safe way you know i i am just stunned when i look at new york particularly the city i mean the city gets the the most attention and it probably deservedly so 
this idea that uh, because of the 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 mandates that are there, that they're going to they had to scuttle and close uh, these various uh, fire departments and police officers in huge numbers having to leave their jobs. I mean, how does the public think that that's actually going to make life better in New York? Uh, it doesn't, and you have you're naming off people who. And you throw the healthcare workers in there as well. They, for the last year and a half, been held uh, as heroes uh, inside of the, the medical field in yeah. uh, responding to the pandemic and working long hours, exposing themselves to COVID, not always having all the PPE uh, that they would need. They're bringing it home, and they have parades. The next thing you know, they're being put out on the streets. Uh, the governor here in New York. I mean, she she recently referred to New Yorkers as her apostles. Like she's a she is the messenger from God here. Uh, and oh, by the way, she doesn't recognize any religious exemptions, but she will uh, declare herself the messenger for from God on on vaccines. But putting that aside, you have people who have questions. They deserve respect and dialogue. They, they say, "Listen, I just had COVID uh, a few months ago, and my doctor says." that I have antibodies, and he was talking to me about natural immunity. And I was reading this study in the Cleveland Clinic and this study from Israel and this other study from this other uh, other place telling me that I might have more immunity from the Delta variant than, uh, because I had COVID than if I get vaccinated. Can we talk about it? No, you're out on the street. Losing your livelihoods, cops, firefighters, healthcare workers, and others, and just a lack of respect. Now, this time last year, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Andrew Cuomo, and others, they were all sowing distrust in the vaccine. They yeah. then woke up a couple months later. They decided to get vaccinated. But Joe Biden said December of last year it shouldn't be mandated. They recalibrate their compass, and every time they recalibrate their moral compass, they insist on you, on me, and everyone listening to instantly recalibrate our compasses to that as well. It's just not the type of person who should be entrusted with power when you have that attitude. Yeah, let's go to cut 20. You have a new uh, mayor there. Who I want to be optimistic. I mean, I think uh, the message was sent by the voters that, hey, they wanted somebody with law enforcement background. This idea of defunding and getting rid of the police department wasn't something that the, the New Yorkers wanted to do. Um, well, let's go to cut 20 and get his uh, his take on the school mask mandate. Um, sorry, we're pulling that up. But the idea was that he was asked by Dana Bash uh, there at CNN about lifting it. And he basically said, well, let's follow the science. OK, that's a good uh, pad answer. Let's follow the science that he hoped to get rid of it. But there are many that are concerned that he was going to put in place first. He He wants to have. You know, he, the mask mandate's one thing. I hope to lift it, but he wants to have the vaccination mandate, uh, maybe even including kids. I don't know. Let's listen to what he had to say. Do you think you'll be able to lift the mask mandate in New York City schools this school year? And if so, when? Let's follow the science, but I hope so. I think part of the development and socialization of a child is that smile. 
Uh, I cannot tell you, uh, I look for that smile when I go visit schools. Not being able to see the smiles of our children, I believe it has a major impact. And not only that, not being able to identify the child. So I think it's imperative if we can find a safe way to do it. I look forward to getting rid of the mask, but it must be done with the science that we're not going back to turning our city and closing it down. We're really quickly here, we have about just less than a minute, but this is what I worry. The Democrats come out with a the policy, then they go scramble to try to find the science instead of leading with the science. No, we've seen way too much of that where the science should follow the politics as opposed to the politics following the science. Uh, I have hope that uh, Eric Adams is going to do a better job than Bill de Blasio. I mean, in one respect, everybody can, say, can do a better job than Eric. do worse. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and I served with Eric in the state Senate, and uh, you know he, he was elected by the people of New York, and I hope that he does a good job. What's interesting when you come out with positions like this based off of instinct and common sense is then you start getting blowback from inside the Democratic base. And what we need more Democratic leaders to do is to explain to their people why they aren't going to go against what's right and what their instinct is telling them. And instead, they're going to stick to the guns. In this case, it's not to continue to be you know, forcing masks on two-year-olds and, and every different way that they're looking to take that to the, uh, the next level with more government control. Uh, so, I, I, And I agree with you. I mean, we've we got to stop uh, trying to get people in power with the science creds uh, to be following the political whims, uh, the political calculations, you know, of pollsters and political consultants for the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been chatting uh, with Congressman Lee Zeldin. He's the Republican uh, candidate uh, for governor of New York. Um, and Congressman, thank you for joining us today on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, you're a good man, Jason. Take care. Thank you again, uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin, uh, joining us. And we'll be back with more of the Brian Kilmeade Show right after this. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, this is Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian. Let's go right to the lines. And Sarah in Illinois, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, Jason, it's so good to have you take my call. Um, I I have a little bit of a beef with something that you said in the first hour, and uh-huh. I just wanna uh, I I want to talk about that. Um, and I will quote you. You said that under Trump, quote, the border was not a problem. And I think that we all need to really remember the true news or the true what really happened. And during the Trump administration, it is true that children were separated from their parents, mainly their mothers, uh, very, very young children, children who were still nursing, children who were babies, were separated from their parents and were in um, 
in a special housing for several months. And so I don't think it's fair to say, and, and I think we need to be very careful, but I think it's not fair to say that the border was not a problem under Trump. We had severe problems at the border under Trump. And so I, I just want to correct that. And well, I appreciate, do you think, um, do you think that, oh, and I appreciate that. Do you think the situation's getting worse or better with Biden? Um, I think the situation is untenable. Under both of them, I think that we need legislators who will be who are willing to really correct our immigration laws. Um, we we have very about, very yeah, sorry to interrupt. Our time laws. is short. Yes, but what about enforcing the current law? I mean, that's the problem I have. I got the sense with Donald Trump that he was enforcing law, that he was living by law. Now I'm all for immigration reform. I think there need to be some changes. But I see a Biden administration that's not enforcing the current law. That's part of the problem that I have. Well, the problem that I have was the the mandate that was instituted in April of 2017, separating the children from their parents. We can't call ourselves people who believe in pro-life if we separate young children of any color, of any hue, from their parents and leave them there and expect them to represent themselves in court at three years old. That was absurd. Right, right, right. So we can't. We, well, we really need to recognize that there were serious problems at the border under Trump, and I, and uh, I hope that your listeners will remember that. Sarah, I really do appreciate it and the sincerity in which you're saying it. And uh, I, I think you're right to overstate and say that everything was just fine and everything was perfect. Yeah, that's that in isolation is is I, I would agree with you that. But I will tell you that the trajectory we're moving on in locking down, securing the border, the stay in Mexico policy, making sure we had the border wall, enforcing the current laws, getting rid of catch and release. It was so much better and moving in the right direction and actually enforcing the law. That's what we need to do. You can work to change the law, but until you do so, you need to enforce the current law. And that's what I saw under the Trump administration and I don't see with Biden and Harris. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade, and uh, lots happening in the news, lots going on in our world, and uh, we're thrilled to be joined by Brett Baer. Brett, of course, is the chief political anchor for Fox News and anchor of Special Report, aptly named Special Report with Brett Baer, weeknights at 6 p.m., and author of the new book, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant. The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876. I interviewed Brett for my podcast, Jason in the House, kind of got in-depth on that. It's fascinating. And congratulations on the book. And congratulations, Brett, for surviving the Bulgari event in Miami, because I know that had to be tough duty. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jason. You know, it's uh, happy wife. Well, uh, there you go. You know, you suffered through suffered through a trip to uh, with your wife all there wearing the black tie to an event in Miami. I watched, I saw it on the Instagram, so I had to mention it, but um, <laughs> you know, you got to do what you got to do. So congratulations. That's right. um, 
after a book tour, she she was owed uh, a little fun. So that's well, good. that's good. Oh, I, I no doubt. Look, it looked uh, beautiful. You're a wonderful, beautiful couple, and I'm sure you had a good time. So uh, welcome back into the mix. And so I want to drag you back into the the morass here. I want to drag you back in and kind of get your take and your thoughts on. I'm still fascinated by what happened in not only Virginia. I mean, it really happened in a lot of places, but Virginia, um, you know, there's always lessons to be learned from every election. Um, I want to, I want you to listen here to Tim Kaine. Uh, he was on face the nation. He's of course the Senator from Virginia. Uh, listen to his, his take on it. Cut three. I think congressional Democrats blew the timing. We should have passed these bills in early October. If we had, it would have helped Terry McAuliffe probably win the governor's race. It would have been good for President Biden. Um, but uh, we are going to get these bills done. They're great for every zip code in this country, and I'm really excited to be working on them. Do you think they were just one bill away from changing the tide there and, and having Terry McAuliffe reelected as the governor of, of Virginia? Uh, I think it was more complex than that, looking inside the the exit polls, looking inside of our voter analysis, um, I think, you know, the economy was a major concern, but uh, schools and um, that situation that we had seen in Loudoun County and the president's, you know, dripping, dropping popularity uh, really all factored in. Would one bill have changed the dynamic? I mean, it's possible. Uh, Virginia is obviously very tied to Washington, D.C., Glenn Youngkin only won by two points. So, you know, anything can change the, the tide. But I just think that it was a confluence of, of a number of things. Glenn Youngkin was a really good candidate. Terry McAuliffe stepped in it numerous times, and he was facing some headwinds in his own party. Yeah, I, I, I think there, are, there were disaffected uh, Democrats who looked at that and said, you know, Democrats can't get anything done. But in order to win a race, particularly in a blue state like Virginia, you have to win the independents. You have to win those that are truly not affiliated with one party or the other. And Youngkin, you're right, I think was a very good candidate um, and articulated a message. I think the other sleeper issue there, by the way, is that, there are so many military families in Virginia. There are so yeah. many of them that when they saw the debacle of Afghanistan and how the military's been handled in general, I think those people said, there's no way I'm walking in that voting booth and checking a D on a box to elect another Democrat. I'm just not going to do you it. You know, I think, I think you're exactly right. Uh, there's a, a ton of military presence in, in Virginia, down in Norfolk, all, you know, all throughout the, the Commonwealth. And, um, and I think that issue was overlooked as a real vulnerability, not only because of how chaotic and messy it was and how horrible it was to leave Americans on the ground, but it also opened the door to really questioning the competency and effectiveness of the Biden administration and doing what they said they were going to do or not do. Yeah, and I – you know, so now the Democrats have pivoted. Uh, you know, they they were able to get with the help of Republicans, they were able to get this this uh, this uh, this infrastructure bill passed. Uh, but now they're going for the big one. Uh, the, the big yeah. one is the build better, build back better uh, at four trillion dollars, according to the Wall Street Journal. Some estimate that you know the numbers could be higher, depending on how you look at what various policies would do. But I think the Wall Street Journal's reputable enough to say four trillion. Um, 
And the, the administration is still saying that this thing is fully paid for. Listen to cut to here. This is Cedric Richmond, who was on Fox News Sunday. It is fully paid for. Uh, it's more than paid for. And it will lead to long-term uh, debt reduction. That is a fact. Uh, the bill that we laid out uh, will do that. And what Penn does, which is patently false, is make assumptions about what Congresses will do years from now, decades from now. So our thing is, look at the bill that's in front of us. It's the third prong to our economic agenda, which is producing great results. So, I mean, there's a lot of different analysis and guessing. If the Democrats could pull it off now, they would, but they haven't been able to thus far. And this idea that they're sticking, that it's fully paid for, I, I just, just don't true. know. I mean, it's I, just not true. I mean, all you have to do is listen to Joe Manchin who wants a lot of these things to happen. He's not, it's not like he's stopping. He doesn't think a lot of these things should happen uh, in that bill. There's some things that he's absolutely against and that are non-starters for him. But his biggest thing is the long-term economic impact on the country. And, and the bill is structured in a way currently that it, is, it has big, big programs that only last for a few years. And then they are set to sunset, expire. But as we know, once you have it in the bloodstream of the American people and they are you know, used to getting something that is now provided by the government, it's really tough to get a Congress to sunset those programs. So that is paid for up until like two or three years. But the longevity of the program, if you bring it out to just 10 years, makes that bill exponentially more expensive and it's not anywhere near paid for yeah, I find it a, a fascinating study, why they led so hard on why this is all paid for, um, because they pretty much, I mean, both sides of the aisle are complicit in bringing our debt to a very, very high number. But this spending, I mean, I was in Congress 2009 when they passed a $787 billion bill, and we all thought, my goodness, that's out of control. $4 trillion is just... Yeah. I mean, it's huge. You're, you're, you're right, though. It, the messaging is interesting. I mean, their concern is about the deficit and debt, you know, attack. But if they were selling it on the substance of what is great inside the bill, like breaking it down and really going into the minute details about how it affects each, you know, family, um, maybe that's a different pitch. But by saying it's paid for, and then by easily negating that fact. Uh, it just doesn't get off the, the dime. I, I think one of the other things, I want to pivot here a little bit to immigration because uh, Peter Ducey, I think, has just been doing a wonderful job as the White House correspondent um, and peppering the president when he gets a chance to, with some, some questions. And it was, if you listen to Cut 12 here, you've heard this, we've heard it uh, several times, but it's Joe Biden brought up this idea that the $450,000 proposal to pay people separated at the border, he's the one that said it was garbage. Listen to Cut 12. As you were leaving for your overseas trip, there were reports that were surfacing that your administration is planning to pay illegal immigrants who are separated from their families at the border up to $450,000 each, possibly a million dollars per family. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. Okay. So $450,000 $450, per person. Is that what you're saying? 
that was separated from a family member at the border under, under the last administration. That's not going to happen. But now, uh, on Saturday at the White House, Joe Biden said this, cut 11. You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't uh, say that. Let's get it straight. Now, here's the thing. Sure. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, he's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. So uh, that's a bit of a different answer than what uh, what Joe Biden, the president, said to uh, Peter Ducey. Uh, it's a major shift. It's a cleanup on aisle four. It's uh, listen. The president either wasn't briefed or just botched the first answer. Um, and now they're trying to hang it on the dollar amount. Peter's original question was up to $450,000 for an individual, up to a million dollars for a family. Um, and he dismissed the whole thing as garbage. It's not going to happen. But then they come back and say, well, it was the dollar figure. You know, it might be 400 It might be 350 um, But it is a settlement that uh, we are all for and the compensation we're all for. You know, that was clearly a, a misstep and uh, a big one when you're talking about something that doesn't make sense to a lot of people who are just trying to, you know, go paycheck to paycheck. And suddenly they think someone enters the country illegally, understand the circumstances are, are bad with with family members and how that happens, but then gets paid more than many Americans make in a year. Most Americans make in a year. Well, it's more than the payout for the victims of 9-11, more than the payout for somebody who served in our military and was killed. And it's just so tone deaf to I, I think Peter's also, you know, the question to the White House uh, deputy press secretary about are you considering making payments to people who didn't break the law? And he, she was confused and then said, well, then why are you making payments to, to somebody who came here illegally? I mean, it, it's just I think one of the things that's just so devastating and so wrong. Yeah. One of the things that I think we're going to spend some time looking into is how many things and how many groups and how many people are paid through this process of, for example, the ACLU or some other group suing the federal government. And then the DOJ, with the authorization from the executive branch, making settlements kind of end around Congress. And so how many other things besides this story that came out? are done that way. I think we really have to look into that. I think it'll be a stunning number. I was in the House Judiciary Committee and we had several hearings about this very thing. Like, where are you getting this money? How are you appropriating it? And when the Department of Justice would actually force a settlement so that they wouldn't pay the victims, but would pay a pre-approved not-for-profit that was more uh, aligned with their political agenda those numbers got to be absolutely astronomically huge. It was beaten back. Congress got rid of it uh, with Bob Goodlatte there as the chairman uh, pushing it back. But then the Democrats came back and charged and reinstituted it. So there yeah. is a stunning amount of money that's being paid out exactly like this. You're, you're right, without an appropriation from Congress. 
and that's you know technically not how we're supposed to do these things but um we're gonna we're gonna put some time and effort into that you know there's a lot of things that I say, Jason, it's like a, an iceberg. You know, we cover the stuff that happens and the chaos that's the iceberg above the water. But there right. is a lot of iceberg below the water that uh, we really need to dig into. Uh, last question here. I just want to your book here to rescue the republic. Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876. What are people what are people going to be surprised at in this book that maybe they didn't realize? Well, I think just the focus on the presidency of Grant and how consequential it was. I've had a lot of response uh, to the book, which is great. It, and it made it to number one, which I'm really blessed um, to, to have happen. But um, it, I'm getting a lot of people that are coming back saying that they're loving uh looking back at a moment in history that they just didn't know about didn't focus on and you know in a readable way so um it kind of fits the mo of the other books uh but grant is a an uncharted territory for a lot of people yeah he really did it, it, it and it's such a vital important time in our nation's history and uh thanks for writing it do appreciate it and thanks for joining us on the brian kilmeade show Brett Bear, the uh, anchor of Special Report with Brett Bear, 6 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we'll see you. Okay. Thanks again. We'll be back with more of the Brian Kilmeade Show right after this. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I don't know that anything has gone wrong. Uh, the country is in a bad place. Uh, we uh, uh, have a pandemic. I happen to chair uh, the select subcommittee on the coronavirus. And I can tell you, uh, you'd be surprised at how much went wrong uh, with trying to combat this, uh, this virus. And that put everybody in a pretty bad way. Uh, education is being called into question because kids were out of school and couldn't go to school. Uh, people out of work. Uh, and now we're trying uh, to bring the economy back, and you've got all of the, these other things happening. So the country's in a bad place. Uh, it was a real tough time to become president of the United States. That was James Clyburn, uh, the Democrat from South Carolina in the Democratic House leadership. I think his assessment is pretty close to being accurate that it is a tough time to become president um and uh i think a lot of these are self-inflicted wounds you look at what's going on with immigration at the border that's worse not better you look at inflation that's worse not better look foreign affairs that's worse that's not better you look at uh the position we put ourselves in to not so that we're now not energy independent that's worse not better um, mask mandates and so many of these other mandates, not listening to the American people, pushing parents out of the way so that government can make the big decisions on how our kids are educated. That's worse, not better. And I think the American people are, are expressing themselves, not only just in the polls, but what we saw happen in Virginia and New Jersey and other places, uh, uh, across the country. And, um, you know, the United States of America is still the greatest country on the face of the planet. We have challenges. We have problems. We have things that go wrong. We have good people who are trying to do the right thing. But, you know, at this at the same time, uh, America always figures these things out. 
Uh, sometimes we're a little bit slow. Sometimes you have to coalesce around something. But America tends to figure these things out. And and we do overcome those challenges. And uh, I got to tell you, I, I am just so proud of the people, the ordinary Americans who do extraordinary things. I'm very blessed in this position, grateful for Brian Kilmeade to allow me to sit in uh, his chair for a day here. Um, but I can tell you, having served in Congress, having a relationship now with Fox News as a contributor, um, getting to meet and see people all across the country, it's the spirit of America that will not be broken. You can get a policy wrong, you can get this and that wrong, but you know what? The spirit of America is not something you're going to break because I think we understand that we are free people. We love liberty. We love the country. We love the red, white, and blue. We love the men and women who serve, serve in our military and as first responders. Thanks for joining me on the Brian Kilmeade Show. God bless you. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.